it was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. Joan of Navarre is probably one of our least known queens of England, full stop. I love this fact they sort of stopped for lunch halfway through the rebellion. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. Hello and welcome to History Gems. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Susan Ronald, who's going to be chatting to me about the Sancy Blood Diamond. I'm looking at the first page of this this archive, the very, very first page. And I called over the archivist and I said, look, I don't speak Portuguese. What is the weight of this diamond? Yeah. And the weight of the diamond was in grains, which was the, what it was at the time, not in carrots as it is now. Oh, okay. He reads it out to me, translates everything to me in English, and I thank him very, very much. And I, I, I leave the room and join Doug, because it's an original manuscript, there was only one of us allowed in at a time, join my husband in the other room, and I said, unless I'm totally crazy, I've just found the Sancy. A jewel with a history that's both long and utterly fascinating. He swallowed the diamond and people um, tried to like, cut him open to find the diamond in his belly. It wasn't in his belly, but Harley de Sancy was still alive at this point. He goes and he actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Susan is an incredible historian and biographer who's written many books, including Heretic Queen and The Pirate Queen, both of which are about Elizabeth I, Hitler's Art Thief, and perhaps most crucially for this episode, the Sonsi Blood Diamond. Hi Susan, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of History Gems. It's a huge privilege to have you with us. Thank you, Nicola, for inviting me. My pleasure. And I've read your book and I'm so looking forward to chatting to you about the Sansi Blood Diamond. But what I wanted to start with, I think, was I, there may be lots of people out there who've never even heard of the Sansi Blood Diamond. So could you just start by telling us a bit about it? Sure, I'd be delighted. Um, it is the only white diamond that has been in four Royal Crown Jewel collections. Uh, its real name is the Sancy Diamond. Um, there's a history, a bit of a history behind the title of the book. Um, not always a happy history, I have to say. So uh, essentially, this diamond was uh, found in Golconda in India about um, 500 years ago and found its way uh, into Europe uh, through the usual trading uh, route um, via Italy to France, to England, to Holland, and all the way around. Um, it was in Portugal as well. Um, it is currently uh, 55.232 carats. It was oh, wow. cut by Jacob Fugger. Um, and uh, the Bishop of Basel uh, back in the 15th century and uh, 15th, 16th century. And essentially, um, it was over 100 carats at that point. It has a history of blood and guts and, and what have you, but its name is Sancy um, after its most infamous adventurer, um, Nicolas Arlet de Sancy, that's spelled 
H A R L A Y de Sancy, mm. um, who uh, was was quite a guy in his own right. Um, but essentially, it um, has gone through the ages uncut from its fifty five point two three two carats. Um, all the way down to its last private owner, um, who was William Astor, son of uh, Nancy Astor. And he sold it to the Louvre, um, I think it was shortly after the Perfumo affair, um, for reputedly a million pounds. Wow. And it's now in the Louvre uh, Royal Crown Jewel Collection. Oh, my goodness. Is this the same Waldorf Astor that owned Heaver Castle? Yes, um, it's yes. well, Waldorf. Um, it was William Waldorf Astor who owned Hever Castle, yeah. and he had the, the Astors had a lot of sons basically. Oh. And um, Jacob Astor, his, the, his son is the one that ended up taking over from uh, William Waldorf when he died. So it's that line of the Astors who had Hever. Um, William Waldorf also gave. Um, Clifton to Waldorf yeah. Astor, his son, his oldest son. And that's where Nancy and Waldorf lived um, until uh, essentially she died. I mean, it obviously has this incredible history. And I'm intrigued to know what brought you to, to write this book. It's a bit of a circuitous route, but it usually is, I think, when you're writing your first book in 20 years. Um, when my children were little, um, I had decided I wanted to stop being in business because, of course, I wanted to help raise them more than I was doing. And um, I was going to write. And in 1983, I got my first contract with a small branch of Macmillan um, to write a, a children's history of France, basically. Okay. And um, that that did lead on to another book, which didn't get published because um, it was it's a children's history of Great Britain. Um, it didn't get published because uh, Macmillan closed that particular um, company, basically when Robert Maxwell took over Macmillan, which is why there's now a St. Martin's in America and a Macmillan here. Um, but anyhow, so I had no particular platform, as they said, back in, in the years 2000, when I decided that I would be able to earn a living writing. Um, mm. Don't ask me why. And um, <laughs> the, uh, I had an agent uh, in New York, and he said, we've got to create a platform for you. So I said, well, I know a great deal about English history, and I really want to buy, write about Elizabeth I. And no, 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 you can't do that. And so I, I went away and, and he said, well, what, what do your parents do? So I, I said, well, my stepdad's in the diamond business. Aha, why don't you write about a famous diamond? The hope's been done. Why don't you find another famous diamond? So I found the Salsi diamond. And at the time I was talking to um, uh, HarperCollins in New York uh, through the agent and they were very interested in the story of the Salsi. And uh, at the end of the day, they didn't bid on the book. Um, it was uh, Wiley who did. They've since sold the rights to somebody else. I don't know who it is. But um, so this, the reason why I thought the Sancy would make a great so-called first book, really my second book, is because um, it was about 500 years of important history. 
and yeah. European history, and there were some Americans who were involved in it as well, and it, it sounded, oh, this this will be great. And with my uh, stepdad's contacts, I can meet the great Tolkovsky, I can meet this one and that one and the other one, and surely De Beers are going to buy a copy, I'm thinking. So I ended up going with Wiley, which was a bit of a mistake. Um, and the reason why it was a mistake comes down to the title. The title was meant to be the Sansi Diamond, which is its name. Wiley decided, because there was so much so much blood and guts and gore in the story, that it should be the Sansi Blood Diamond. Okay. Also because the diamond is, is allegedly cursed. I was in a meeting at De Beers with their PR lady, and um, the PR person at that time for Wiley in the UK, and um, the De Beers woman said, look, if you take the word blood out of the title, we will buy 10,000 copies. Wow. And I said, great. <laughs> I come out of the meeting, the Wiley woman said, you don't decide who does the title. And I said, excuse me? And she said, you don't decide who does the title. So there's this huge row, and they said they would not publish the book if we took the word blood out of the title. So yeah, that is why it is the Sansi Blood Diamond. And we didn't sell 10,000 copies, just in case you want to know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it should have sold more than 10,000 copies, just for the record. Because it didn't. I've read it and it's a great book. Thank you. It's, um, I, I hadn't found my style, I feel, but um, all of the facts are 100% true. Yeah. Um, the, the, the most interesting thing is after I'd written the book and it was published and reviewed and everything, I tried to change the Wikipedia entry on the diamond <laughs> because nobody had the, the, you know, the whole history. Nobody had done the history before and uh, it kept changing back. And so I decided, Oh, I'm just going to leave it and let the world think it, it, it is three or four different diamonds. That's it. <laughs> I felt an affinity with the diamond after writing about it for a year. So. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, understandably so, understandably. Um, yeah. So thinking about the history of this fascinating diamond then, so I think it was uh, some time ago or sometime in its early life, it was used as part of the dowry of Valentina Visconti. Is that yes, how you pronounce yes. it? Yeah. Yes, when she uh, married the um, the king to be of France, um, yes, it, it, she basically, you know, the times don't really change that much. It's just the clothing and the technology. Mm. Um, the the French kings did not rule over a France that was as big as it is today, of course, and mm. they were relatively poor. And Visconti was from a Milanese family who were very very wealthy. And um, she, there's this beautiful description, I think, in the book about how she it makes her progress up to Paris to marry the, the future king. And um, basically, she brought money so that they could fight the wars against the Dukes of Burgundy. And of course, um, they lost. And the diamond then has, passes into the Burgundy uh, Duke's domain, as it were. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, 
diamonds were meant to be um, an omen of good luck and invincibility and love and all sorts of things. Mm. And of course, Charles the Bold, bless his cotton socks, um, said, uh, well, I'm going to wear my diamond, meaning the Sancy diamond, in the crown that I wear when I go into battle. Okay. Well, you know, and when you lose a battle, um, you lose your crown and you lose your diamond, don't you? Although not in necessarily Charles's case. Yeah, not not necessarily in that order. Well then Charles definitely lost his crown and his head and his diamond. And then it disappeared. Oh, he lost the diamond. Yeah, lost his diamond. Disappeared. On the battlefield. On the battlefield. Okay. And, and what's so fascinating is it disappeared for many, many years. And um this is this is the bit. I'm sure you love about research as well, is going to the original archives. Yeah. And I decided that since he was fighting against the Bishop of Basel um, in Switzerland, uh, I would go and find the archive of the battle, which I did. And what, and, sorry, can I just ask, what in what, what year was this battle? Oh, now, now you're asking me to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's 15th um, century though, right? Uh, yeah, it's 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 the early sixteenth uh, century. Okay, okay. early sixteenth century. Early yeah, 16th century. And um, he basically was, and it's the same time as Richard Richard the Third, really. So it's it's fourteen seventy six is the year. Okay, that's okay. it. Okay, so fourteen seventy six is the year. The diamond disappears completely. And it stays disappeared until 1507. And uh, what happened was Jacob Fugger, who was the big money man um, in, I suppose, Lotharingia, which was that that middle section of the uh, Charlemagne's empire. He was really yeah. the middleman in Germany and Switzerland and all kinds of wild and wonderful places. And um, he had bought a diamond that was not the size of the Sancy, it was only 55.232 carats. So for, until I wrote the book, since 1507, everybody thought it was a different diamond than Charles the Bald's. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, um, but basically what had happened was he bought it from the Bishop of Basel and we had gone to, to Basel uh, sorry, to uh, burn to the archive and looked through the inventory of everything that Charles had lost in the battle. Wow. And, and there we we find the 100-carat diamond. So when really? I say we, my husband, Doug, who you know, and, and myself, we, we always research together because otherwise it's lonely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so um, but it was just wonderful that we found this diamond. And obviously what had happened was either Fugger had the diamond cut, I mean, he had the means to have it cut in Bruges, uh, which was where all of the big diamond cutters were at the time. Yeah. Or um, he, or the Bishop of Basel had it cut. But I suspect that it was um, Fugger because he traded the 55.232 diamond, so mm -hmm. half, about, about half of the saucy size, yeah. to the Portuguese king in exchange for the worldwide pepper contract. 
in those days, really? pepper, was worth, yeah, pepper was worth more than diamonds. Oh my God. And that's what came into the Portuguese crown. That's incredible. So it was traded in exchange for peppercorns. Correct. And, wow. and basically, ships and peppercorn and all sorts of things. Um, so because the, the, the world had been divided in the mid-15th um, century by the Pope into two realms, one was going to be Spanish and the other was going to be Portuguese and their empires and whatever that meant. So effectively, um, Fugger decided, well, he would, he would get all of the Portuguese pepper. Even if he can't get the Spanish pepper, at least he'll have the worldwide Portuguese pepper contract, which mm. he did. So this diamond becomes the wonderful jewel in the crown, literally, of the Portuguese kings. And um, the king, Don Manuel, uh, who was mid-16th century, he was called the fortunate, um, basically had this as part of his his um, death inventory because whenever kings and queens died, as you know, back then, they made a death inventory. Yeah, okay. But nobody prior to me actually went to Portugal, to Lisbon, to the archive Torre do Tombo, and looked at the death inventory. And oh, wow. So you, you went to see it. That's oh, okay. yes. I'm, I'm sitting there. And, you know, I have, because I grew up in California, I have a smattering of Spanish. Um, I took Portuguese at university. Um, I have a smattering of German. Um, I'm fluent in French. So, you know, foreign languages tend not to make me go, Ugh. Incredible. Um, and, I'm, and I'm looking at I'm looking at the first page of this this archive, the very, very first page. And I called over the archivist and I said, Look, I don't speak Portuguese. What is the weight of this diamond? Yeah. And the weight of the diamond was in grains, which was the, what it was at the time, not in carrots as it is now. Oh, okay. And he reads it out to me, translates everything to me in English, and I thank him very, very much. And I, I, I leave the room and join Doug, because it's an original manuscript. There was only one of us allowed in at a time. Join my husband in the other room, and I said, unless I'm totally crazy, I've just found the Sancy. And he went, what? I said, it's on page one of, of Don Manuel's um, death inventory. He said, you're joking. I said, no. Because up until this point, nobody had connected the 55.232 carat one with the 100 plus carat one. And um, it was there. There was no doubt about it. I don't know why nobody bothered to find out before. So from, from the Portuguese inventory i was able to then follow the diamond through the centuries all the way to the astors and the louvre it was incredible that is amazing what a discovery i, I thought it was i thought it was pretty good myself actually yeah i mean well a huge pat on the back and i mean how incredible was that actually to be able to trace i mean we know obviously it's a large diamond but um how incredible to be able to trace it all the way from portugal in the 16th century right through to the 20th century you know what what is even more incredible is that it went from portugal to 
France, then to England. Okay. Elizabeth I was, she was very covetous. Yes. <laughs> Amongst <laughs> other things, as you know. Um, yeah. I admire her greatly for her uh, statesmanship. We can't stay, say stateswomanship, can we? Mm. We can. We can. <laughs> It's all there we go. Um, yeah. I admire her greatly for keeping England independent because she was under constant attack and so many different um, uh, threats to her life. But um, she did love a nice jewel. Yeah. She really did. And she'd heard about this diamond. And so when Antonio de Crato, who had been one of the men who – thought that he was going to become king of um, Portugal after Don Manuel and, and, and wasn't, effectively. Yeah. When he, he robbed the crown jewels from Portugal and exiled himself in, in England, okay? And Elizabeth said, okay, well, you can have your exile. Give me your, give me your jewels. Give me your diamonds. <laughs> so, Very reasonable. <laughs> exactly. So the, there's a whole thing in the book about how this, this goes backwards and forwards. And um, Don Antonio keeps saying, yeah, yeah, I, I'll, get, I'll get you the Sancy. I'll get you the Sancy. And he never does. Now, Henry VIII also wanted it. Oh, um, right. Yeah, Edward VI wanted it. I mean, everybody wanted it. Um, and essentially... It was um, it was a, a big problem. I mean, as a matter of fact, um, Henry VIII thought he was buying the Sancy, and he ended up buying the Three Brothers, which which is a ruby gemstone. Um, well, it's 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 three rubies set as a gemstone, um, which was also lost by Charles the Bald at the end of the fifteenth um, uh, century, and that. Gemstone, the, the Three Brothers, which was basically sold at the same time as the Sancy, is actually on Elizabeth I's sarcophagus. She's wearing it. Okay. Really? Yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. That's really wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, it was uh, it was quite something. Why Why is everyone so desperate to get their hands on it? Is it just because they, you know, because it's such a large diamond? It seems to have got this reputation in Europe as being quite important and you know everybody well, wants to get their hands on it well don't forget diamonds were well, all jewels all gemstones were a symbol of greatness yes. um, but diamonds in particular were meant to show that you were invincible invincibility in that time was kind of important to, to say the least and uh Owning a diamond that already had been in a previous crown jewel collection was also, uh, and particularly because Portugal, the Portuguese and the Spanish empires were still huge, okay, mm. it showed that, ha, I can, beat, I can beat the Portuguese, as it were. And it was also important because Philip II, of course, also wanted it. Philip II of Spain, who was Elizabeth's greatest um, detractor, I suppose, even though he, as we all know, he, he said he would uh, uh, marry her, even though she was she wasn't a good Catholic. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So basically, she she didn't get it. Um, it stayed in France, um, and then um, of course James the first got it. Yeah. And so how does it end up in coming to England? 
Well, um, Henrietta Maria. James I bought it from uh, the French. Okay. A proper, a proper purchase. Put it in his hat. There's a portrait at the National Portrait Gallery with him wearing it. Okay. And, okay. Um, it's it's a famous portrait of him. And um, and what's interesting, as you as you really know, is that diamonds couldn't be painted in the same way that they can today. There was no yeah. titanium white. So they were painted black. And if you look at the portrait of James I with the Sancy in his hat, it's black. But um, it, it basically came to him through, um, well, while it was in France, it had all kinds of, um, it had all kinds of adventures between Henry of Navarre and Nicolas Harlay de Sancy. So um, essentially what happened was Harlay de Sancy got his hands on it through Antonio de Crato, who was the man who, the Portuguese man who'd come to England. And he worked for Henry the Henry of Navarre. And as you know, there were about nine civil wars in France between the Protestants and the Catholics. Mm. And um, it ended up in the possession, finally, of Henry IV of France, because Harley de Sancy and his... Um, his man of business, um, were both killed during these various civil wars. Um, rather infamously and, and grotesquely, Harley de Sancy gave the diamond to his man of business and said, take this to um, Henry of Navarre. And he was captured and he swallowed the diamond. And people um, tried to they, they cut him open to find the diamond in his belly. It wasn't in his belly. But Harley de Sancy was still alive at this point. And he goes and he actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Really? Breaks That's her. a true story. True story. True story. Um, those documents were, believe it or not, oddly enough, at the British Library. <laughs> I so, can't believe that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so now it's in the French crown, okay? So it's gone, mm-hmm. it's basically gone from the equivalent of an Italian crown. There was no single Italian crown in, in the Visconti days. Over to France, to the French crown. Lost and went to the Duke of Burgundy, then went to the Bishop of Basel. Fugger trades it for the pepper contract. So now it's in Portugal. Um, it gets stolen from Portugal and is kept safe in France. <laughs> it now is involved in the civil wars in France. Henry of Navarre gets it. And basically, uh, it is given, uh, It's James I buys it, and it's given as a wedding present to, to uh, Charles I. And it gets put into Henrietta Maria's crown. Now, Henrietta Maria is the daughter of Henry of Navarre, who becomes Henry IV of France. So it's like, okay, it's been in the crown of France a couple of times. It's now in the crown of England. And, oh, we're going to send our daughter over. She's going to marry the English king. Everything's going to be hunky-dory, right? Fine. Mm. Um, And the problem is, of course, uh, Charles I was not a great king. And um, the English Civil War broke out, and Henrietta Maria was actually Henrietta Maria was actually 
fleeing for her life because she was deemed to be a terrible influence on um, on uh, Charles. She goes to the north of England and undoes all of the jewels in her crown, including the Sancy, and sends it off to Amsterdam to be pawned, to buy cannon for the Civil War. Really? So, again, it's used to create war. It's used to protect England. Um, it's now with um, a number of uh, uh, merchants in the Netherlands. Um, and, of course, uh, Henrietta Maria survived, but Charles II, as we know, didn't. No. So um, it it became, by this point, with so many of its owners having died mm. okay, um, it, it was um, became very difficult not to say that it was a cursed diamond Charles the Bald who dies violently um, yeah. you, now, you now have the English Civil War this curse is now taking on quite a quite a big um, quite a big uh, I suppose reputation okay yeah um, for being really not not that great to own, but by the same token, it is the, the largest white diamond in Europe, and it remains so, so until the twentieth century. I mean, it's just it's so fascinating that all of that history, and that's what I was just going to ask. Actually, was when you were talking about the diamond getting this. Um, reputation as being cursed so but it obviously doesn't put people off of wanting to own it yeah i i you know if i mean i've I've now looked at it um and uh very very closely and having talked to gabby tolkovsky at great length about it um who's one of the greatest diamond cutters ever um Mm. you can see where it had originally been cut, you can understand why people wanted it. It's just it's the size of a walnut, okay, <laughs> um, or half a walnut, I suppose. Uh, nobody knows what happened to the other half. It might have smashed. Um, Tolkovsky seems to think that it went into two or three smaller pieces. Um, oh, certainly, really? Yeah, certainly the other, he felt, by what he saw of the diamond that it it um the 55.232 carats was definitely the largest part otherwise we would have heard about the other bits um mm. so um and and of course you know jewels were incredibly important to all royalty so this yeah. being the largest meant the largest white diamond meant that it was really really the largest um, in Europe. And of course, you know, so now it's in the hands of some, um, diamond dealers in the Netherlands. Of course, Henrietta Maria is exiled and who ends up with it, but, um, Cardinal Mazarin in France. Oh, okay. The advisor. Yeah. Advisor to uh, Louis XIII, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Do we know then how it ended up back in England? Well, it, it went somewhere else first. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was 
just a mere bauble in the Sun King's crown. So it went on to Louis XIV from Mazarin. Um, okay, wow. Okay. And yeah. and under Louis, in Louis XV, he also had it. It was far less of a of a powerful um, diamond in his in his own mind. Um, but you know, Louis the Sixteenth had it. Whoops, lost his head, um, and it became a hated diamond because Marie Antoinette wore it. Okay. Oh, okay. All right, but of course the French yeah, Revolution. The French Revolution comes along, and it gets stolen. Who ends up with it? But uh, Napoleon's brother, who was king of Spain. Ah. Okay. Um, yeah. And when Napoleon lost his uh, all of his um, basic uh, fighting around Europe, uh, his brother Joseph. As as the most Catholic uh, king of Spain, I went to guess where, to America, to to this is quite the a story. unromantic sounding New Jersey. Uh, he, went <laughs> to, he went to New Jersey. Uh, this is this is really before the the great era of uh, the railway railroad robber barons. Yeah, um, but um, Joseph also went to. England on his way to Breezy Point, New Jersey. Okay, mm-hmm. um, returning periodically to Europe. Okay, afterwards he wasn't sentenced to death or anything, um, but he he spent quite a lot of time in Florence, in Italy, mm-hmm. and you know no longer had his brother to rape and pillage Europe, um, and because he was after all the greatest looter until Hitler, his brother. Uh, so he was running short of money. Joseph, yeah, and um, his next door neighbor uh, in uh, Florence was a guy called um, Nikolai Demidov, okay. and uh, they were the future in-laws of his niece, Princess Matilda. And the Demidovs were white Russians; they were part of the vast Russian Empire's wealth in um, something called uh, steel and coal and, and very unromantic things. Um, but um, they owned it for about 20 years. And mm. um, it went then to, um, of all places, back home to India. Its next owner was the first uh, Indian national to be uh, actually knighted by Queen Victoria. Uh, wow. so that's the TGG boy. I love the name. Yeah, great name. The great name. Um, who was really one of the um, great believers in the Raj and Empire. Um, and he, he basically came from tremendous poverty. I think he had only like about a hundred rupees in his pocket when he arrived in in Bombay for the first time, and was given a job by his cousin. And what did Gigi Boy do? He traded with China. It was his trade with China between China and India that made him extremely wealthy during the the rebellion in the eighteen sixties ish. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, he did back the British, um, and. Uh, he was um, 
he was really very, very well thought of. But um, what he did is um, decided that he wasn't going, he was going to do good works on his death. And in order to do good works, you need cash, not jewels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he sold it for cash in 1906 to William Waldorf Astor. Wow. Who was the great grandson of America's first millionaire, John Jacob. So now it's in the hands of an American living in England. Yeah. So we're now back in England, 1906. Yeah. And relatively shortly after he acquires it, um, his son Waldorf meets and marries uh, a divorcee, Nancy Astor. Ah. Okay. Yeah. What does William Waldorf do? He gives it to them as a wedding present. Now, there are lots of different stories about this as a wedding present, but and it, it was in the center point of Nancy's tiara that she wore to all court events. Um, but um, one of the uh, amusing things that I read was that William Waldorf did not like Nancy. She was too dictatorial for him. And so basically oh. he uh, gave it to her in the hope that she would be one of the cursed owners who would die. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's quite dramatic. Yeah, well, wow. He, he, he was a dramatic sort of chap. Um, so basically yeah, wow, um, yeah. she was the last private owner. Um, Bill inherited it on her death and he sold it back to the Louvre. And that's where it is today. Exactly. Incredible. Just finally, for those listeners who want to connect with you and find out more about your work, where can they find you? Well, I have a website, susanronald.com. And you can also uh, send me an email through the website. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode of History Gems.